So we're continuing with the analysis that he's his rebuttal to the Khazarian king. The Khazarian king had previously said, well, did they not sin with the golden calf? Idolatry is awful. So the rabbi is now trying to make the argument that clearly the Jewish people are on an incredibly high level. So he begins by explaining the nature of the relationship of the special unique people, individuals who had existed throughout the, the generations, right? And each generation, there was only one individual or perhaps one or maybe two who were on this very, very high level at the same time who were worthy of having the, the divine communication and were worthy of passing over the divine truths to the next generation, okay? Now, this all continues and sometimes skipping generations where you wouldn't have any, you would ha always have at least a couple of people alive, but in each generation, you wouldn't necessarily have anybody who was, in other words, as we find, you have Aver is alive, Shame is alive, Noach is alive, right? These are all in, in linear, um, they're ancestors of each other, right? But they're all alive and they're all worthy of this divine communication, okay? And they're all alive at the same time. Even Abraham is alive at the same time as Noah, as we learned previously. However, in any specific generation, there would only be one unique individual. Now, that doesn't mean that every single link in the chain going back to Adam would actually have an individual, as we saw that Abraham's generation, of Abraham's father's generation was skipped over. Then what we said is that Abraham has one child, Yitzchak, who is elite, who is worthy of this communication. And then we have Yishmael is not. Then we have Yaakov versus Esav. Yaakov is the elite one. And then what we finished with last night is on page 109, is all of Yaakov's children are all worthy of having this divine communication, worthy of having a, an explicit relationship with Hashem. And therefore, they all inherited the land which is reserved for divinity. Canaan, right? The land of Canaan, which we call Eretz Yisrael today, which was initially called Canaan, was the land that was reserved for the place in which Hashem would communicate with people openly, right? Once we got into the land of Israel, after passing through the desert, no longer was there prophecy outside of the land of Israel. The prophecy is really reserved for the land of Israel, which is where you could have a uniquely close relationship with God. Thus began a new era when divinity rested on a community where previously it rested only on individuals. God preserved them, caused them to multiply, and raised them in Egypt, just as one would cultivate a tree which has exceptional roots, waiting for it to produce fruit of the same quality as the original tree from which it developed. Okay, so what's the fruit of the original tree in this example? Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Yosef, and the brothers. The new fruit included Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. It also included the likes of Betzalel and Ahaliah and the tribal heads, and the 70 elders who were worthy of unending prophecy. And Yeshua ben Nun, Kaleh ben Yefuna, Miriam's son, Chor, and many more. These people were worthy of being illuminated by the divine light and of receiving God's individual providence. Okay, so we went on this little sidetrack over here to describe the unique nature of the Jewish people. But the purpose of this conversation was to lead us back to the rebuttal. And the rebuttal is, clearly, clearly, the Jewish people are unique. So you cannot imagine, which you're going to end up saying is, what the nature of this uh, idolatry, we have to really define very clearly what the nature of this idolatrous worship was. If there were sinners among them, they were rejected by God. But even they were elite descendants, as is evidenced by their ancestry, their innate qualities, and their ability to sire elite descendants. This is why a wicked person will sometimes be spared, so that the elite quality he possesses will be distilled and will manifest itself in his child or grandchild. 
this is a, 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 um, a complicated idea. It's an idea that the Gemara describes, right? The Gemara in Megillah that we're doing the Dafyomi now describes how occasionally you'll have people who are, who are very wicked people, but who end up having descendants who are very righteous people. And famously, we say that Haman had descendants who were learning Torah in Bnei Brak, okay? That even Haman was worthy of this, and, and uh, Nero, and, and Vespasian, and, and the list goes on and on of the people who were very wicked and did terrible things to the Jewish people, but they ultimately had descendants who were doing the right thing, right? When Moshe Rabbeinu comes to kill the person who has been evil to the, to the Jewish man, the Medrash tells us that Moshe looks both ways. And the Medrash tells us what this means is he was trying to see, would this evil Egyptian man merit to have a worthy descendant one day? Because if he were to merit to have a worthy descendant one day, he wouldn't have killed him. In other words, no matter how wicked people are, there might still be a possibility that they have a special unique quality that they will pass down to the next generations. And that's why they're in this world, right? So it's a critical point for us to recognize in terms of understanding the nature of evil, right? So when we think of the nature of evil and we think of free will and we think of, well, people have the ability to choose to do bad, well, why doesn't God stop them, right? Well, the answer sometimes might be is that God has a different plan and that there is something unique. There's a kernel of good that they will end up bringing out, right? Asav, we say, was terrific with the mitzvah of kibbut avaim, was terrific with the mitzvah of honoring his father, right? So the descendants of Asa, although they might have terrible, terrible uh, anger and animosity and sinna, right, hatred towards the Jewish people, they might also have this other aspect of having great kibbut avaim, and perhaps there'll be a person who converts from the tribe of Asa, right, or from a descendant of the tribe of Asa, for example, Haman, who is from Asa, right, who ends up having descendants who become Jewish people and are teaching Torah and B'nai Brak. This is what occurred with Terach and others, as we mentioned above, who did not merit divinity. In other words, Terach is someone who in his generation, he was not worthy of divinity. However, what is his son? His son is Abraham. And the son of Abraham is Yitzchak. That means that we come from Terach. It means that there is something unique about Terach's genetic components or spiritual makeup that enabled him to give something over to the rest of us, right? And at the Seder night, we say from the beginning, we were over the Avodah Zaran on, on, on Passover night. That's what we say at the Seder. From the beginning, we were idol worshipers, right? And what this means is, it's a reference to the fact that Tarach, our great-great-grandfather, worshipped idols. Nevertheless, because of their elite ancestry, they sired elite descendants. But this quality existed only in this pedigree and did not exist in the pedigree of Cham and EFS. Okay, this is considered to be one of the more controversial ideas that Bizarre is famed for in terms of his uh, understanding that there are different people are on a higher level than other people. What's important to recognize is we are not just talking about the, the um, we're not talking about like looks, we're not talking about brains, that's not what's going on over here. We're talking about a very sp a spiritual essence, a spiritual component that is limited to descendants of those people. But in truth, in truth, even if people convert, they do have ability to access something along these lines as well. This phenomenon is common in genetics as well. Often we find a son who does not resemble his father at all, but closely resembles his grandfather. Undoubtedly, the genetics and resemblance were dormant within the father, even though they were not outwardly apparent, right? This is a pretty sophisticated understanding of, of genetics. So to Aver's genetics lay dormant in his children until they surfaced with Abraham, okay? Like Uzari said, I grant you that they inherited their greatness from Adam, 
and that Adam was the most perfect of all creatures, and that your nation was worthy of achieving more greatness than anyone else in the world. But this is all a red herring, Rabbi. But still, how could there be any remnant of greatness after the sin of the golden calf? He didn't answer the question. This is misdirection. My challenge to you was, listen, if it is true that indeed they have this incredible, incredible revelation from God on mass, how is it possible that literally 40 days later, they're worshiping a golden calf? And your answer is, well, uh, they're very good people. That's not what I asked. That's a character witness. And I ask for character witnesses. I'm assailing your main point, and you're not answering that. The rabbi said, in those days, every people worshipped images. Even if philosophers had been able to prove to everyone the existence of the one omnipotent God, they still would not have relinquished their images. This is because they would focus their attentions upon the image and would profess to the masses that divinity attaches itself to the image and that it is unique in some supernatural way. This is a very critical component of understanding, of giving us insight, because ultimately, this should be something that bothers each and every one of us every year when we read the Torah portions and we say to ourselves, one second, how is it possible that indeed they build a golden calf and start dancing around it and offering sacrifices to something that they built themselves? doesn't make any sense. Well, the answer is that what we are looking for is kind of like a focal point. It's kind of like a talisman, right? And it's the talisman that helps us really focus our belief in a greater power that's difficult to relate to. But by having this focal point, we're able to relate to the more abstract being. Some would attribute this uniqueness directly to God. We do something like this today when we treat certain places with special reverence. We'll either consider the soil and rocks of these places as sources of blessings, okay? So in other words, the, the human mind longs for something tangible, longs for something less abstract, less ephemeral that we can attach ourselves to, that we can relate to on an easier level. To say that they're worshiping the golden calf as if it had its own independent power is that there's no reason to believe. Others would attribute the image as supernatural qualities to a certain star, planet, constellation, or the like. So in other words, he, he's explaining what the process of the Ovdi Avodazara, what the idol worshippers was like. Everybody wanted to be able to relate to something that was less abstract. The Jewish people took it in one way and it was wrong, but the way that they took it, at least they still believed that everything is really coming from the God, from the real power. The masses would not accept upon themselves any religious teaching unless it was accompanied by some image upon which they could focus their attention. The Rambam, when the Rambam goes through Maimonides, when he goes through the history of Avodah he has a very similar understanding where he says that initially everyone recognized that there's only one God and God created everything. And then they said, you know what, we want to be able to focus on God's servants. Now, why do they want to focus on God's servants? Why do they want to worship, so to speak, the sun, the moon, and the stars? They know that God had created them. Well, the answer is that they said, we don't want to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars for their independent powers. We want to worship them because through honoring God's servants, we'll be able to honor God himself. Meaning that we cannot relate to God. You can't ask us to bring an offering to God. <laughs> we don't see it. There's nothing. We can't see it. It's impossible for us to understand this. We're not philosophers. We can't understand it. We can't appreciate it. If we worship the servants of God, that's something we can relate to. And then from there, it snowballed until it became a situation where people were worshiping independent creatures. And the Rebbe Dalevi is going to work out the same pattern in terms of explaining how the Jews could have fallen so rapidly Yes, we did fall. We weren't supposed to do it, but not quite as much as you think it was. So it does not negate the fact that they did all see God. They all heard the revelation of God. That's not negated. The fact that they were able to do something so quickly afterwards, it wasn't negating their belief in God. It was negating their belief in God 
it was negating that they weren't allowed to um, to worship anything at all other than God, but it wasn't negating that ultimately the golden calf was just a means of focusing their relationship and their service of God. 